G'day Dons fans and welcome to the round 24 edition of Don the Stat. We went into round 23 with hope. It was extinguished by quarter time. A huge loss to GWS was a gut punch that put an unsavory exclamation mark on season 2023 with one last chance against the top of the ladder magpies to take some momentum into 2024. I'm Jonathan Walsh and I'm joined in the Don the Stat studio by my co-host Ian Hume. Hume, mate, how are you? Yeah, look, I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm still a bit confused that the Dons had a buy scheduled for the second last round, but um, look, that's the AFL for you. Um, look, in all seriousness, we've had a few days to take in that result, and we've both got some thoughts. I think we better get stuck into it. Yeah, look, it would be nice to just forget that it never happened, wouldn't it? But uh, not really our style. So yeah, let's crack in, mate, and and rip the band aid off, as we like to say. Yeah, well, look, normally we would start you know, match review by going through our predictions and how they played out before looking at the match more broadly. But when you lose by 21 goals in your biggest loss in 17 years, it really feels redundant to do that. So we're going to take a more holistic approach and consider what's been happening over the past few weeks uh, that have led to the result from Saturday. Now, just for some context, I was at a wedding for much of the first half. I was looking after my children for the second. So I didn't see the game live. I was obviously following the scores, but Look, I thought I should suffer like the rest of you, and I have worked my way through the game slowly, very slowly across the week. About 10 minutes at a time is what I've been able to handle. Um, But look, the thing that really stood out to me was just how easily our forward moves were cut off by GWS. Um, And that's something we identified last week was how potent their intercept game was. It's, It's really what's driven their success so far this year. And then they were able to move the ball forward with such little pressure. So we were only able to generate 18 mid-zone turnovers so where we turned the ball over between the arcs. And and that was our second lowest for the year after the Brisbane game. And we were much more competitive in that Brisbane game than we were here. I, you know, even even watching a replay, I, I kept expecting some sort of response, but it seemed that the players were physically or, or mentally unable to do so. So you were able to watch the match as was happening, Jono. What was the thing that stood out to you the most? Yeah, not a lot stood out, to be honest. Um, you know, I think one of the benefits of, of us doing this show on a Thursday rather than, you know, in the 24 or 48 hours after the game is that it does give us the opportunity to process things. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm certainly a person that it does move on from things reasonably quickly um, and, and don't take that as a as a sign that that I don't care. It's, it's quite the opposite. But I, I think just as I've got a little bit older, I've got a little bit better at not letting the um, – the results of my football team impact how I, I feel about life in general um, as much as maybe I did when I was younger. But, you know, in, in terms of the contest itself or, or lack thereof, it's, it's hard to take anything away from it all and not just because of the result and how we play, but also watching games on TV at, at GWS's ground, I just think is really, really hard to do. The, the camera angle, the extreme close-ups, you, you just don't really get a view of, of what's going on. Uh, so, yeah, that uh, it's hard to take anything away from the game at all, but yeah, there just wasn't a single part of our game that was adequate. We got beaten up at the contest. There was a lack of desire to pressure the opposition and win the ball back. And then there was a lack of desire to to open up space or, or get up the ground and, and work into space or present as an option when when we did um, have the ball in hand. So, yeah, it, it was just a, a yeah, an awful showing in, in all parts of our game. Yeah, especially, as you said at the start, a, a game where we did have a lot to play for and we've talked about you know, some people are saying that you, you won't don't want to make finals this year, but I think we both are agreeing that playing a finals game will be worth much more than than getting an early holiday there. So obviously that that's disappointing from that end. And you know, you mentioned you mentioned lack of effort and lack of desire. And it's a really hard thing to quantify when it comes to a football side. You don't, you know, there's not an 
effort value or effort effort measurement out there. But one stat that really stands out for me, particularly with the way that we've played this year, is the amount of marks we were able to generate. So throughout the year, we've been the highest marking side in the comp. Now, that hasn't always been to our benefit, but it has shown that we've been able to create space and separation, particularly moving the ball up the field to take uncontested marks. It's been one of the hallmarks of how we've played this year. So against the Giants, we only took 60 marks, and that's our lowest for the season. The next lowest was 69 against the Pies on, on Anzac Day, and they didn't take a whole lot more than that either. It was a real free-flowing open game, that one. GWS took 108, and that 48-mark differential is the most we've conceded this season. So it really showed our lack of willingness to work hard to, to give our teammates options and then our lack of ability to contest GWS so that they couldn't just control the ball through the air. Yeah, we we obviously don't have, you know, GPS data, so we're not, you know, and even if we did, I'm not sure I'd understand it, to be honest. But, you know, we we don't see, you know, how how far people are running and, and you know, sprint efforts and, and repeated efforts and all of that kind of information that, that clubs would look at uh, to to get an idea or a gauge on what the effort levels truly are, but uh, the the markers that we do have, they're they're the ones that that stand out for me. Made a season low in uncontested marks and a season low for midfield turnovers. Yeah, I think in a, in a game that was, you know, meant something and, and gave us an opportunity to push on and and play in a final. Uh, yeah, that that's beyond disappointing. Yeah, well, I, I felt you could see with the response on particularly on Twitter and and the forums as well, um, just how frustrated and annoyed people were. So I um, opened myself up to uh, potentially a bit of, a bit of vitriol, a bit of, bit of yelling by hosting an event sweat, uh, session on Twitter spaces for Bomber fans. Um, and I was expecting a lot more anger and shouting that there was quite a large turnout. But really the most common emotion was one of resignation and acceptance that the issues of the club are, are going to take time to fix and it's going to require some continuity of leadership. And this is where the roles played by both Scott and Vozzo and, and also Barham as, the, as sort of setting the tone at the top are really going to be crucial, but it's also going to rely on the players stepping up and taking more responsibility. And, you know, other than a certain list manager, the, the players are the one constant through all the upheaval of the last, say, five six years and a lot of where we go in the next couple of years is going to come down to just how much they want to work to improve all aspects of their play yeah make good on you for for fronting up and and running that i i didn't have it in me to take part to be honest and you know like everyone i was i was bitterly disappointed with what we saw and and sad was the best word that i could find for it uh look i I knew and I think we all knew whether we wanted to acknowledge it or not that there were going to be no shortage of down moments in this season. You know, we we even drew criticism in terms of you and I drew criticism at, at times this year, particularly earlier in the season for tempering our own excitement uh, and and putting caveats on on the situation, suggesting that, you know, still there was still a lot of work to be done. And that that said, at no point did I expect that the down moments would be as low as, as what we saw against the Giants. Um it's weird and I can't explain it, but I have a strange unwavering confidence in the new leadership at the club and it's something that I've not felt for a long, long time. I knew or they probably knew that themselves would, you know, they would be criticised for telling fans that we still had a lot to work to do, that there were going to be up and ups and downs. And, you know, that criticism came, didn't it? You know, Kane Corns criticised us for not talking ourselves up and, you know, people were saying that we shouldn't put ceilings on it and, and those kind of things. But, uh, and, you know, even some some narrative in the last week or so that that in doing that we were giving players an out for not performing I, I really don't see it 
that way at all. I think we've got three leaders in in Barr and Vozzo and Scott that know how much work there is to be done and they're committed to rolling up their sleeves and getting it done. I, I don't for a second think that they'll accept what happened on Saturday and that they'll be okay with it. And I don't think the message to our playing group will be that it's okay either. And I think if there was any complacency at all with with them or, or other people within our club on, on how much work there is still to do to, to get us back to where we need to be and, and where we all want to be, then then that complacency would have well and truly been left in with Western Sydney after the weekend. So, you know, call it blind faith or call it optimism or glass half full or, or whatever you like, but I'm confident that we do have the right leaders to steer us for, forward. And, and I think trying to dig a little bit deeper just on my own feelings towards that and, and where that comes from, and, you know, this isn't a... A, um, a, a psychology session for you and I to, to vent and get our feelings off our chest, but here we are. But, um, uh, you know, Dave Barham put his head in the lion's mouth this time last year and forced change. He could have just walked away and, and you know, uh, removed himself from the board and, and sailed off into the sunset and sort of gone, you know, I tried, couldn't do it. Um, oh, well, but, you know, he he put his hand up. He, he forced a board spill. He didn't accept how poorly handled the internal review was and then rolled up his sleeves and, and got on with things. And the easiest thing for him to do, I, I suspect, would have been just to walk away and and say, you know, I tried. But, um, you know, he he did the hardest thing that he possibly could have done and and, and took off a, a well-established leadership who had a history of looking after one another and, and, and doing things, you know, I guess on their own terms rather than maybe what was always for the betterment better of, of the club. Uh, you know, Brad Scott told us from the very, very first day, his first press conference, that he wanted to build a world-class football program. So he he didn't talk about just improvement or or uh, or you know small things. Like he he set his aspirations so high that he wanted to turn Essendon into a world world-class football program. And and we all know what a low base we were starting from in in that regard. So. Again, you know, he he signed a four-year contract, having been away from coaching, and and came in and and told us that he wanted to make Essendon the best that it that that there is basically. So you know, he hasn't shied away from from rolling up his sleeves either. And then you know, Craig uh, Vozzo hasn't said a lot, has he? He's he's um, pretty quiet, but he's got experiences and, and credentials as long as his arm. Uh, he wrestled Marnie and Dodoro into harmony to, to at least get us through the season. He, he, he restructured them to report into him and, and took ownership and control over that. We've seen, you know, one change there with, with, with Josh Marnie, um, you know, exiting the club at the end of the season. And, and I'm sure that won't be the last administration change uh, or football administration change um, before, you know, uh, 2023 is out so uh, you know he again another one who's who's indicated he's prepared to to do the hard work that that needs to be done when when perhaps before others haven't and you know there's already been mistakes there'll be more I'm, I'm sure of it um I, I you know but I, I just do think for the first time in a long time we've got some united leaders at the top without self-interest and that gives us a chance to build things back from the from the bottom. Now, you know, we've the old fish rots from the head. Well, I think we've got the head right now. We just need to get the rest of the fish sorted. Yeah, and you know, we're, we're trying to reach a, a pretty high pinnacle, and you don't climb Everest all in one go or all in one day. It, it, it does take time, and you have stops along the way, and you've got to stop and reassess and, and find a different path forward. Sometimes, so it as we've said a lot during the year, it, it's it's going to be a, a time process and and one which we need to give the leadership some space and chances to to make some mistakes potentially 
in order to find out what what is the right path forward there. Look, the one point I want to finish on with regards to talking about the GWS is, is sort of the idea going around that because of this result and, and some of the results we've had post-buy, um, you know, this year's been a wasted one and, and any improvements that, that we'd shown have been wiped out. And look, that'll only be the case if the players and the coaches take the wrong lessons out of the year. I, I, you know, historically the last few years, I think we have taken the wrong lessons out of out of results from the year, you know, just getting into finals and then thinking we're ahead of where we are. Um, I don't think anyone's going to think we're ahead of where we need to be now, but we've certainly learned a lot more about different players. We've learned a lot about what game style is going to work and, and stack up in certain situations. So as long as that leadership takes identifies and, and takes the correct lessons out of there and then is able to move forward from there, I don't think this year is going to be a wasted one. Yeah, I, I think that's right, mate. I, I was reminded on Twitter during the week of 2017 when we lost that final and John Worsfold reportedly sort of went through the playing group and, and was, you know, really demonstrative and hard on them and and told them that it, in no certain terms it wasn't good enough and only to be told by the leadership of the club that that's sort of not how we do things at Essendon and, you know, that that approach wasn't, wasn't the right way to go about things. Uh, you know, we remember... Xavier Campbell apologising to fans on Twitter for the effort that the players put in in a game and then removing it because the the players took offence to it and weren't happy about it. I think those days are well and truly over. I, I think, you know, I, I'm not sure that Brad Scott's necessarily walked into the rooms after the game on Saturday and, you know, pulled the paint off the wall and, and yelled and ranted and raved. But I, I do have a, a level of confidence that, that the right messages would have got across and, and that message was that, what we showed on Saturday will, you know, is by no means acceptable at the Essen Football Club, you know, now or, or at any time in, in the in the future. So, yeah, we, we didn't show any fight on Saturday, but I think we have shown more fight in more games this year than last. So if we talk about improvement, we lost 11 games by 22 points or more in 2022 and just six this season. So, uh, you know, we, we've been more competitive in more games. We lost four games in 2022 by 20 points or less. They're the games that I think we've converted into wins last year. So, uh, sorry, this year. So, you know, we we have won the four four games uh, more this year than we did last year, and I think they're typically the types of games that we would have we would have lost last year, where we we were, you know, in the contest but just didn't get across the line. We've won three games under twenty points. Sorry, we we won the three games under twenty points last year and, and six this year. So, uh, you know, that's those. Those close ones last year that we were losing, we found a way to, to win some of them. And then we found ways to get back into contests this year that we we didn't last year. We've had five losses under 20 points this season. So, you know, the, the games we were losing last year, we were able to win this year. And then some of the games that crept out to five, six, seven, eight goal losses last year, we've been able to wrestle our way into the contest and, and maintain competitiveness and, and give ourselves chances to win. You know, the games against Port Adelaide, um, the game against the Swans, et cetera, uh, you know, were games that that probably would have petered out to, to bigger losses in, in previous years. I think there are six games this year, the two against Geelong, the game against the Dogs, Brisbane, Fremantle and GWS that we weren't, completely in the contest or, or we weren't really in the contest at all. But even in three of those, the first time against the Cats, against Brisbane, we were up at half time and at Fremantle, we sort of showed a level of resolve to to give us a, a glimmer of hope. You know, I think we all thought when we got back within 20 points against the Cats early in the season, we were a bit of a chance. Fremantle in the third quarter there, we sort of gave ourselves a little bit of a sniff and and, and that was extinguished, just extinguished, I should say. But 
I reckon there were about 12 games in 2022 where I really just don't think we were ever in the contest. So I do think we've shown more resolve, more fight in more games in 2023 than we did last year. And I think that's a, a really good foundation to move forward. And I'm not ignoring or dismissing what we saw on Saturday. I can't be any more clearer than that was that was awful and, and in no way acceptable. But I don't think it, it does undo everything else that's happened. You know, a season is... 23 games long now, 2020 or 22 previously. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of good that, that's got out of it. And I think we've got plenty of games into young players who are going to benefit from, you know, a, another preseason. Martin and Perkins have played 22 games, so they'll play tomorrow night and, and play all 23. Uh, Caldwell and Durham have played 21. Menzies played 20. We've got 17 games into Hobbs. Again, he'll he'll make that 18 tomorrow night. Davey played 10. Massimo played 8. Brian's played 7 with another game to go tomorrow. Sardis has had a taste, so he'll finish the year on four or five games. Uh, Baldwin will play his fourth game tomorrow night. So we, we've got plenty of games into young players. We've seen the impact Setterfield can have on the structure of our midfield. We get to see that again tomorrow night. Langford's exploded playing as a deep forward and, and kicked 50 goals. So, you know, he's improved his game. Uh, you know, I think this, uh, we won't list them all because we'll do that as a, a postseason pre uh, review. But, you know, I still think regardless of the result on Saturday and regardless of what happens tomorrow night against Collingwood, that the season uh, doesn't stand for nothing. I think we've got plenty out of it that can help take us forward. Yeah, agreed. Well, look, that, that's probably more time spent on the GWS game than it deserves. Look, let's move on and, and look at some broader themes. And one of our favourite pastimes is to see what they've said on SEN this week and, and really rip into it. And, you know, there's some commentary about our game plan and how it doesn't stack up. And I, I feel like that's been a bit of a broken record um, from a lot of commentators this year. What do you make of that? Yeah, you've committed to putting together a stinger in the off-season so that we can have some level of intro into this segment that's become a reg- regular feature of Don the Stat this year. So I, I look forward to seeing what you what you come up with in the off-season. But yeah, I think there's, there's people that have made some statements throughout the season that have been hanging out for us to truly drop off of the finals race to really stick the boot in. And that happened on Saturday. It, it was an awful result. It deserves criticism. I don't shy away from that. But I think what that did do was it meant that um, uh, that they then had the opportunity to to sort of really truly do the I told you so. There's going to be a little bit of irony in what I'm about to say, mate, given that we host a podcast that's called Don the Stat, but all stats tell you is what happened. They don't tell you what is supposed to happen. And, and Essendon didn't play badly on Saturday because the game plan is poor. They played badly because they played badly. Right, like the game plan isn't to, oh, clearly isn't to go out there and not be competitive, not to put pressure on, not to defend harder, not to move the ball, uh, not to lead and 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 protect your teammates. Like it, that's not the game plan. So letting data tell you what a game plan is supposed to be is a bit of a fallacy. And I think you need to look a little bit closer at what happened when a team is playing well, rather than than you know games like Saturday and and when things aren't going well because. What our game plan is meant to be, it, you get a better indication of that when we're actually executing it properly. Now, our our challenge as a, as a as a club and as a playing group is that we need to be able to execute that longer in games and and in more games. But our our game has stood up to the top eight this season. We had a, a close loss to Collingwood on Anzac Day, a game that we you know we we probably should have won given that we got thirty points up. We were ahead of the lines at halftime. We ran Port close both times, and you know probably beat them over there if Ridley doesn't get concussed. And 
geez, we're stiff the second time around. Like we, we could be sitting here, you know, ironically, we'd be in the final eight and having beaten Port Adelaide twice and, and they'd probably be out of the top four. We beat Melbourne, we beat Carlton, and then we led St Kilda in the last quarter and, you know, we, we ran out of gas in, in that one. Lost to the Swans by a couple of points and then did beat the Giants the first time out. So uh, against the top eight sides, you know, we've had that one big blowout against GWS, which was awful on Saturday. And then we, you know, Brisbane really did run over the top of us in the second half and beat us quite comfortably. But we've been competitive and or won uh, in, in a lot of other games against the top eight sides. As I touched on, though, we just haven't been able to play well enough for long enough in games and from week to week. And, you know, I think I think there's still a lot more that we need to do in terms of whether it's game plan or it's execution of that game plan to win the ball back from the opposition further up the ground. But if we look at games we've won, and I'm not cherry picking here, but it just, it just gives us a bit more of an indication of what our game style is meant to be like when it when it works, when it's effective, when when our players are executing. So in games we've won or, or we've played well, I actually took the game out against West Coast because we were terrible in that game and, and we're really, really lucky to win it. But uh, in those other wins, those 10 wins, we've averaged 29 midfield turnovers and that would rank us 12th in the competition. So still some work to do. We're, we're still not winning the game, the ball back off the the opposition, you know, in the middle of the ground or further up the ground, closer to our goals frequently enough. But it does put us above Carlton and Brisbane. So, you know, two teams that are playing really, really well, uh, you know, uh, Brisbane is second on the ladder and and some people have them as flag favourites and uh, every Carlton fan will tell you that they're going to win the flag. So in terms of winning the ball back, when when we're executing our game plan well, we're, we're doing it as well as a couple of the flag fancies. When we've lost badly, though, that's dropped down to 23 a game. And that puts us dead last by a margin. So is that a game plan problem or a capability problem? Uh, uh, my my view is that it's a capability problem rather than game plan. We had 32 midfield turnovers against the Giants in round four, which I think was probably our best pressure game for the season. We had 44 against Melbourne the week after. So, uh, you know, our, our pressure in that game helped a little bit the, the wet conditions later in the game. And then 31 against the Crows, which... That particularly that first half of that game, I think our pressure levels in that game were outstanding. Um, Saints are number one in the AFL, averaging 33 games. So you know, St Kilda have been really good at being able to do it consistently over the course of the year. We haven't. We've been we've been a lot more up and down. So no doubt the game plan needs to evolve. I think we've seen it evolve as the season goes on. We we've talked about that, you know, over the last couple of months anyway. But uh, and I think as that has evolved, we've actually leaked more scores. But I think. There's a bigger problem with capability than there is about game plan itself. And, and I think, you know, we, we get the opportunity now in the offseason to add players to our list that are going to help with that capability piece. Yeah. And, and just talking about game plan and, and, and stacking up in, in finals, I guess, you know, the commentators are so, so reliant on what's come before. You know, everything everything's about how, how things are done, how things were done in the past. I'm not sure they they ever really consider what is possible until a team wins a flag doing something different. And then suddenly that becomes orthodoxy as well there. Yeah. It, it's such a stupid premise, mate. It, uh, you know, that it's, it's been thrown around this week that, that what we do won't stack up in finals. Well, uh, of course it won't stack up. We, we just had a game where we were 
presented an opportunity to get ourselves into the finals and and we weren't up to it. You know, we, we've proven that we haven't been able to maintain a high standard of football across 23 games. And that's why we're 12th and not playing finals. Like it's, it's such a stupid comment. Uh, but again, I, I don't think that's game plan. I think that's more to do with, with capability with the caveat, as I said, that, that it does need to evolve. And I think, I think it is evolving. And I, I think in fact, the more it's evolved, the the worse our performances have got. But that's not a problem with the plan itself. It's the execution thereof. And like you touched on, I think this is an area where the analysts are comparing teams to what's happened in the past and it ignores the way that the game has changed and continues to evolve. Geelong went about things very differently in 2022 to how Melbourne went about things in 2021 and how Melbourne are going about things in 2023. You know, Melbourne have continued on playing the same way. But, uh, you know, Geelong were quite different. And we've got four teams in the top four that that go about things very, very differently. And we're not going to go too deep into this this week. It's it's something that we we want to talk a bit more about in, in the coming weeks, seeing as though we're going to have a little bit of extra time on our hands now. But our game, particularly with ball in hand, doesn't really mirror much of what Melbourne and Port Adelaide does. But it's not that different to what Brisbane and, and Collingwood do, albeit we don't possess the capabilities of those teams, right? We, we don't have the guys on the outside who can run and spread and, and use the ball as well as Brisbane and Collingwood do. We don't have a Nick Dacos, you know, we don't have a, a, a Zach Bailey, those kinds of guys and, and, and depth in those kinds of positions. But if you just look at the four, the top four in isolation, there's real differences about them. So when, when the, these, um, analysts in, in the football media talk about finals team and, and what stacks up, these four teams are playing very, very different types of football. And, and if Melbourne doesn't win the flag this year, then we're likely to have a Premier that has a very, very different profile in some key areas to what we've seen in, in past Premiership teams. The one exception is their ability to win the ball back of the, off the opposition higher up the ground. Collingwood and Port ranked second and third for midfield turnovers. Melbourne fifth. That said, Brisbane is the, the outlier. They rank 12th. Um, so they're, they're not that far above where we are. We rank second in the AFL for marks, right? 100 a game, and we get criticism for it. We're commented on as over-possessing the ball, and, and we certainly do have a, uh, a tendency to do that when we play poorly, but but when the game plan works and when we execute well, we're a lot more direct when we do go forward. So, again, game plan or capability, I think it's capability. Brisbane are ranked third. They take 1.6 less marks a game than we do. Now, no one sitting there going, Brisbane take too many marks, they over-possess the ball. Probably helps that they've got some a stack of forwards that that are demanding the footy. We don't quite have that yet. Collingwood are ninth, Melbourne are 16th, Port Adelaide are 18th. So the top, you know, you've got Brisbane who would take the third most marks in the top four and Port Adelaide who take the least number of marks in the competition also in the top four. Very, very different scale. Melbourne, Port, Brisbane, top three teams are inside 50s. Collingwood 10th, we're 14th. So again, you know, three of the four are getting the ball inside 50 a lot. Collingwood have a very different profile of how they go about it. Yeah, well, look, that's that's going forward. How, how are we going the other way in terms of defending inside 50s? Yeah, this is the other area where there's there's a real commonality. Uh, we can see the fourth most inside 50s in the AFL. The top four sides are all ranked in the top six for conceding the least number of inside 50s. And, and you know, it, it's their ability to restrict the opposition going inside 50 is the reason or, or one of the primary reasons that they're in the top four. But the other parts of the game are quite different. Melbourne are first for contested position differential. Brisbane are fourth. 
and then Collingwood at ninth, Port Adelaide 15th. So again, you got Melbourne, the number one team for, at the contest and Port Adelaide all the way down in 15th. So a very, very, very different profile. We're, we're 12th. Brisbane, number one for clearance differential, Melbourne fourth. So again, Melbourne, Brisbane around the contest, around clearance are really strong. Port Adelaide are six. So despite being 15th for contested possession differential, they're, they're sixth in the AFL for clearance differential, Collingwood 11th and, and we're 12th. So again, very different clearance profiles around the, the top teams. Collingwood fifth for tackles, Melbourne 10th, Port 11th, Brisbane 18th, we're 16th. So we're talked about as a team that doesn't put on a lot of pressure, doesn't tackle a lot. If Brisbane win the flag this year, we could have the Premier having had the least number of tackles in the AFL in a season. I, now, look, I haven't gone back and checked the the history of it, but I, I'd hazard a guess that's probably never been done before. Where there is some similarities is is three of them are in the top five for for inside fifty tackles. Collingwood are sixteenth, so Collingwood are a real outlier there. We're eleventh, so. You know, three of the top four are, are doing a really good job of locking the ball inside their forward fifty through through pressure, and and we knew that was a gap for us, and and we also know because our coaches have told us that 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 is part of our game plan. We want to be a forward fifty team, forward half team. We just haven't been able to execute. So again, I think it comes back to it's not a game plan problem; it's a capability problem. Melbourne are the number one team for intercept differential in the AFL, so the number of times that they. They win the ball back through a mark or, or a possession off the opposition. Collingwood a third, quarter sixth, Brisbane a ninth. So a little bit of disparity there. Um, uh, I think you mentioned last year, I think there's only been a couple of the premiers, uh, maybe just the Bulldogs in 2016 that were outside the top four. Yeah, it's it's just the, it's just the Bulldogs. That's a real outlier. Um, but, you know, that's probably the one metric that I found when I looked into it last year that really linked – premiership sides but other than that it's all everything's all over the shop so yeah so if melbourne or collingwood win the flag this year they fit that profile port adelaide and brisbane don't um so again there's a fair bit of disparity melbourne and the number one team for creating turnover opposition turnovers port are eighth collingwood are 11th and brisbane 14th Essendon the 15th so they don't actually create uh well certainly port collingwood and brisbane don't create as many turnovers as, as you might have thought so you know, we're going to dig into that in coming weeks a fair bit more. This is very surface level stuff. But I do think the narrative, as I said, from some of those analytical members of footy media about our game plan is is missing the point because they're distracted by what's happened in the past and they're not really giving much respect to how the game evolves and how it's involved in, in 2023. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've laid it out there pretty pretty clearly. There's no commonality between top sides. And, and as you say, unless it is... Probably, probably only a Melbourne from that that list fits a, a previous premiership model, and, and part of that reason is because they are, you know, a premier from two years ago, and they're playing fairly similar to the way that they did then. So if it's not Melbourne that ends up winning the flag, then we're going to see a real big difference. Even you know, shudder to think Carlton doing it. The big thing that came out this week was that most of their scores are from clearance, whereas historically most of a premier scores have been generated from turnover. So you know if hell freezes over and Carlton win the flag, um, again, there's going to be a whole new paradigm built up there, you know, with different styles. If you can find different styles that can get you to the to the top, you know, we're going to see big changes and, you know, that orthodoxy might be thrown out the window. Yeah, I, I hope no one's driving when you talk about Carlton winning a flag. Um, but, yeah, you, you're right. The, the game's changing. Teams are doing it in different ways. 
the one commonality is winning the ball back through forward half pressure and and in doing so limiting the the number of times the opposition can get inside their own forward 50 and uh we don't do that anywhere near well enough but again I, I, that's not game plan for me that's that's capability and execution and uh, when we play our best footy we're good at it and when that drops away, we get exposed and, and we need to close the gap on, on how well we execute that in, within games and from week to week. And I've said this before on, on the show, but if Collingwood do get their game together and go on and, and win the flag and, and hopefully they get it together in the, you know, in the first final rather than uh, against us tomorrow night, I, I do think there's some similarities with how we play and, and how they play uh, or more similarities between us and them than than premiership teams have gone of years gone by and and you know we're not at their level they're much better at winning the ball back off the opposition and intercepting the, than we are uh, you know they they've got some really good intercept markers that without Jordan Ridley we don't really have um but teams do tend to chase the premier a little bit and and if Collingwood do win the flag and and teams start to evolve their their game towards them then I actually think what we've done this year particularly the way we played in the first half of the year gives us a little bit of a head start in, in terms of being able to evolve our, our own game. And, you know, I, I don't think we're going to jump up into the top four next year. I still think we've got a lot of work to do. But uh, like I said, I, I think the knocks on our game plan are, are unfair. The knocks on our execution are, uh, and capabilities are, are completely fair. But um, I, I don't think we have a game plan problem. I, I, I do think we just need to to get better at all all facets of, of what we do. And, and that includes the you know the the cohesion the the adaption of that game plan evolve the game plan tweak the game plan but um i think the underlying themes of the way that we've been trying to play this year i, I think there's been some real good in it yeah well i do like the idea of having a head start on the rest of the competition and on what the new uh preferred game style is i, I don't like the idea that it's going to require a collingwood premiership in order to get there but you know we'll see what happens there well, let, let's start to look at some news and we've had a fair bit of list news in the last couple of days. And firstly, I think we should touch on the fact that it's, it was announced today, but and not all that shocking decision to see Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody announce that this week against Collingwood's going to be his last game. Now we did go through our, our thoughts a lot. Um, Tip's first retirement just before Dreamtime last year. So I don't think we'll go through it in as much detail this time, but I'm just really glad we got to see him one last time. We're going to get to say, say a proper goodbye uh, this year that we didn't really get a chance to do last year. And, you know, I think for a lot of Essendon fans, the moment he came on against Hawthorne and then kicked that goal, he's going to go down, not as just as a highlight for the year, but, you know, one of the, the big moments as Essendon fans, just, just to see him out there playing and doing what he does best, um, really reminded us just how special he was. And, you know, obviously now it's what we're going to be missing there. Yeah, I, I think people on the outside will, and, and I mean, non-Essendon people will question the decision to bring him back, given that he only played a couple of games. But the opportunity to to have him back at the club, to uh, to show a level of healing from some of the the mistakes we've made culturally as a club in in years gone by, uh, to have him help you know Wanganin in his second year and and Mankara and, and the Davy Twins in their first year and and help them settle into football, uh, you know, heard on on Andrew McGrath's podcast that the relationship that that Waller's built with those guys and and the connection that they've got i think that 
allows Waller to leave a, a longer lasting legacy on the football club than than he probably otherwise would have. We we all would have remembered the great stuff that he did on the field, but I think the work that he's done with those guys this year and 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 helping to set them up for success going forward means that that legacy lives, you know, for the next decade or so, uh, and and well beyond that because I'm, I'm sure that that those guys now have all the things that they've taken from him that they'll be able to pass on to the next generation of young players that come through the club. And then, you know, we got that moment in round one that was probably the icing on the cake, wasn't it? That that was something that we we didn't expect that we were going to get uh, when he announced his retirement last year. So, uh, yeah, that, that was brilliant. And, you know, he's just been a beacon of light through some tough times. So, yeah, we, I think we're really indebted for what Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody's done for our footy club. Absolutely. Well, look, another change that was speculated on by a lot of people and it was confirmed today that James Stewart was told that he would be delisted despite having a year to go on his contract. And, you know, I think at the time it was a fairly weird decision when he was given two years last year, given his injury history and much like it was, you know, a couple of years ago when we gave two years to Devin Smith and who then retired halfway through his deal rather than being told he, he wasn't required. Um, you know, some questionable decisions there in terms of this management, but, for, for James, it's obviously been a tough year, both footy-wise and personally for him. Um, but look, in the seven years of the club when he's been fit, he's, he's really played some key roles, both forward and back. And look, it's a real shame that 2017 forward line wasn't able to stay together because he played a key role in making that such an effective unit. Um, when he came in, he came in a few games into the season, but he just added that extra piece to give uh, Danaher and Hooker at the time, you know, a, a lot more space and, and a lot more ability to, to show what they could do. Um I was really glad to see him get back into the VFL after all his injuries. He finished with five goals in, in the final VFL game. But look, I, I guess from a you know a ice cold point of view, I think this is the correct decision for the list going forward. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's the right call. I think we need to to rid ourselves of keeping guys on the list that in you know in hope that they might come good or that they might get their body right. I think we've held out ourselves back for a long time with those kinds of decisions, especially the guys that are six, seven, eight years into their career. If, you know, if they haven't truly established themselves at that level by then, then, you know, I think that they're just holding back out our opportunity to move forward. Uh, Yeah. I was thinking back on that 2017 season. We we really did have the makings of a really good AFL forward line back then, didn't we? And, and, and James Stewart played a really big role in that. That year, Danaher kicked 65 goals and was all Australian hooker kicked 41. Fantasia 39, Waller kicked 34, Stewart kicked 22 in just the 16 games and and Josh Green kicked a a goal a game over 17 games and and they're now all gone from the club. Um, So, yeah, or as of the end of the season, they're they're all gone. Uh, We used 36 players in 2017. Only five of them will be on our list next year, assuming Parrish resigns. Uh, Merritt, McGrath, Langford and and Laverde will be the others. So, you know, huge turnover. I know he's moved forward in in recent times, but I wonder making this decision so early, uh, can we read anything into the BZT and and McKay, uh, Ben McKay situation and and what we're going to do? You you wouldn't think that we'd cast Stuart aside with a year to go on his contract if at least one of those two, if not both of those guys, weren't going to be on our list next season. I think it'd be a big ask for Reid and Hayes to come in and play lots of footy in 2024 if if that were the case. Yeah, just just turning back on that, that uh, 2017 list, I think uh, Ridley, Renman and, and Draper all would have been on the list, but obviously didn't play any games that year. That year. So, yeah, but, you know, even if you, you count that as as eight players, that's that's still quite a turnover in, in a six-year period. 
Uh, one player that was at the Bombers uh, that year, or, and you didn't actually mention him there, so um, there's actually nine, sorry, but uh, Dyson Heppel, you, you sort of forgot about him for, somehow, but um, look, he's resigned for, re-signed for another year. Um, not the contract I think most people wanted sorted first, but, you know, he's a, he's a former skipper. He's a former best and fairest winner. He's an All-Australian. Um, and he signed on for his 14th year at the Bombers. And, you know, a lot of questions about his place in the team leading into the season, but he's been one of the most consistent performers uh, this year. I, I think the fact that he seems to have got over his foot issues has really helped him. And he's had some big moments in games, in, including crucial marks in, in the, the Dreamtime win and then the second North victory. He played some, you know, really uh, key marks and, and intelligent play that allowed us to win both of those games. And, you know, there's been a fair bit of discourse about whether he should play on some point to the lack of experience on the list and, and the need to keep some older players for that reason. Others are concerned that the Hebel playing on will hold back the younger players from getting senior experience. Where do you sit in regards to Heppel playing on? Yeah, you called me out there, mate. I actually meant to mention that there was one more that we'll talk about in a moment and completely forgot about it. But uh, so, yeah, he, he obviously was there in 2017. And I think he was actually our next leading goal kicker after Green. I think he kicked 12 or 13 goals that year. And was he all Australian in 2017 playing in the midfield? No. Um, okay. Well, he certainly played in the midfield and and, um, and kicked some goals. But yeah, my, my instinct when it was first announced was to be a little bit uncertain. I It was a part of me that thought, I'd really like to see him go out on top and, and well, maybe not right at the top, but, you know, playing really good footy. He's had a really good season. He bounced back from that, you know, that poor form he showed in the first three or four weeks. But since then, you know, obviously we already knew Phillips had retired, but but since then, you know, we've learned that Waller's retiring, the news on James Stewart. When the season starts for 2024, Hep and Dylan Shield will be the only 30-year-olds on our list. Stringer turns 30 in April um, on Anzac Day and Nick Hine turns 30 next August. So, you know, it's it's a really, really young list. It was young already. AFL seasons are long and they're hard and they're a real grind. And and we saw our own results fall away this year when when the grind hit in the in the last third of the season. We were already the third youngest and the fourth least experienced list in the AFL this year, and and you know with the news of the last two weeks with Phillips and and Waller and and James Stewart moving on, we're we're going to be a fair bit younger again next year. So look, I think one year a one year deal for Dyson, given everything else that's transpired in the last couple of weeks, I think is is the right call. We we need some senior bodies and experience to help get these you know young guys through the season. Yeah, and I think given that probably next week after we have exit interviews and you, there's probably going to be some more announcements about players staying on or, or players move, moving on, um, I think it's a good time to to look at the list where it stands and, and maybe think about what other changes might be made. So um, in terms of what we happened coming into the season, we've had Redmond and Heppel re-sign from the out-of-contract players. As you mentioned, Andrew Phillips has already announced his retirement and now we've got AMT and, and Stuart departing. That's our three necessary list changes that, that do need to be made each season. Um, but I suspect, and I think you suspect as well, there'll be more and potentially even uh, some more contracted players that maybe are told that their services aren't required. But that still leaves a large amount of players out of contract. So I'll run through them then, and then we'll talk more in depth. So, so currently from the main list, we have Darcy Parrish, Nick Bryan, Brandon Zerk Thatcher, Harry Jones, Will Snelling, and Alistair Lord. And then if you look at the rookies, we have Kane Baldwin, who 
if he stays on the list, he needs to be upgraded to the main list. Although the way that that functions, you can add him to the main list and, and but lose a rookie spot if you um, expand the main list. It's all very confusing. I won't go into it here. Uh, Jai Menzi, Massimo D'Ambrosio, Patrick Voss, Rhett Montgomery, Jaden Hunter, our mid-season signing. And then you've got your Category B rookies in, in Mankara and McBride. So just turning our attention back to the main list players, um, there's still a lot of questions up in the air. Uh, a lot of contracts are probably being uh, held up by the Darcy Parish discussions. And I think we both agree that he's a player we want to keep, not at any price, but a price worthy of the player that he is. Um, and from the sounds of it, it, it doesn't seem like other clubs are making big plays uh, for him either. Uh, you would suspect that if there were concerns about him not signing with Essendon, you'd see a lot more stories drop by. You know, managers do like to drop the story that other other clubs are interested in players to, to try and push that bidding war, but we're not seeing that. So I think at this stage, we're still odds on to sign Darcy Parrish, but the, the flow and effect of that holding up other contracts could mean that players like a Nick Bryan or a Brandon Zerk Thatcher, because their contracts have been delayed, are having more time to consider their careers and there's more time for other clubs to approach them. So they have big decisions to make about their future. So I guess is Brian happy to be the backup to Draper for the foreseeable future? Does he want to be a main ruckman? And then how does BZTC's position, given all the talk about bringing McKay in, and McKay would come in sort of as that number one defender that, that Zerk Thatcher has been playing this year, uh, it's clear that Port have shown a lot of interest in him because of their need for a key back. And there's obviously the go home factor for him as well in terms of South Australia. And, you know, again, I'm not sure how much you can read into this, whether it's it's real or whether it's a manager putting pressure on Essendon to try and get him to sign him up. But um, there has been reports that he's more likely than not to move at this stage. And we'll see how that plays out, whether that's real or, you know, put in to, to create pressure. But, I'm I'm generally keen to keep both, but there is a world where both seek trades. Um, Harry Jones, just generally, I think they do rate him highly. You expect to keep him around, but you know he's one of those players you sort of mentioned before when you were talking about Stewart that potentially you keep on sort of as a sunk cost fallacy when when it's clear that their bodies aren't necessarily up to the rigors of AFL football. If it was up to me, I'd be giving him a one year deal to see how he goes. I, I wouldn't be contracting him for any more than that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just to touch on Harry Jones, the the difference with him, and you know, we gave James Stewart two years, twelve months ago, when he demonstrated over a period of time that he's he wasn't capable of of playing full seasons. Whereas, you know, Harrison Jones has still got a fair bit of youth on his side, and and you know, we've we've arguably had a, an environment that that probably hasn't got the best out of of players that have some injury concerns. So I think, you know, he's a keep. I think our forward line functions better when he's in it. I think he's the best forward on our list at clearing space. And despite his smaller frame, I think he's a good contestant mark and he defends. He he does things that most of our forwards don't, whether they're they're small or or large. So I think he's a keep because he just makes our team better. We've just got to get him fit and and he's got to put the work into to get himself there as well. My views on Darcy Parrish are, are well-established, so I don't think I need to rehash those or, or go into them again. Brian and BCT are interesting ones, right? They're, they're players that both have a, a lot of talent. I think BCT has improved leaps and bounds this season and, and you know, playing out of his weight division. If we got Mc, uh, Ben McKay to the club, I actually think BCT becomes a better player for it. He's shown that he can be really effective playing in front and reading the play and intercept marking. And, and we, we spoke earlier, our inability to win the ball back off the opposition uh, you know, needs to improve. Well, I think McKay can help BZT do that more often. 
uh, we go from being a one-trick pony with Ridley in the air to to, to adding BZT and his capabilities to that. And McKay's a, a really good intercept mark himself. I, I think at the moment he, he averages the third or fourth most in the AFL per game. So uh, it gives us some some defensive aerial capabilities that we just don't have enough of at the moment. But by the same token, it might also be the best time to cash in on BCT if there's a demand for him in South Australia. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be in this the situation where we didn't have either of McKay and, and BCT. But if BCT wanted to go home, and the opportunity pr- opportunity presented itself to play Reed and or Hayes alongside um, uh, Ben McKay, then you know potentially we're better for it. Uh, and a complete hypothetical, mate. I don't want anyone. You know, this isn't a rumor or anything I've heard, but. We do have the opportunity to make some smart list management decisions, I think, to to help improve the capability of Ellis. So hypothetical, BZT goes to port, wants to go home. You know, we get Ben McKay to the club. Could it allow us to do a deal that unlocked a player like Josh Sin, who, who you know, we were touted as having an interest in at the draft? Uh, he went, uh, you know, that, that's the one where Port um, swapped picks with West Coast to get him before we drafted Ben Hobbs and, and they took Sin. He hasn't had much of a go. He's had some injuries, but hasn't had much of a, a go at Port over the last couple of years. He's got real speed. He's got run. He's got carries, a penetrating kick. He's a Victorian, plays halfback and wing positions where we lack some real depth in. So, you know, as much as we love BZT and, and would like him to stay, does it give us an opportunity knowing that we have Reed and, and Hayes coming behind him to to actually make our list better? Uh, so I think that's the list management decision that that our list management committee really need to to ask ourselves. Can we use BZT to, to unlock some a, a player to, to help us improve our list? And I have similar views on Brian really talented young player. I think he's shown some really, really good signs this year when he's been given the opportunity. But if he's in demand and there's a deal to be done and and we can get an experienced Ruckman onto our list to partner Draper from elsewhere, and, and we've spoken before that experienced Ruckman, you know, tend to move around pretty readily, then I think, again, is this a smart list management decision to be done to turn an asset that is potentially surplus to our needs into something that can help address the areas of our list that, that need work? And it might actually help us to evolve and, and develop our list faster than we than we would by hanging on to those guys. So I know it sounds awful to talk about humans as assets, but you know, when it when it comes to list management, I think they're the views that that our club needs to take. Yeah. I I guess just talking about the other main list players in, in Snelling and Lord, they're they're both ones that I wouldn't be offering new contracts to. Uh Snelling's obviously been a good servant, top three in the best and fairest a couple of years ago, but really limited in what he can do. And I think we need small forwards that can be both an offensive and defensive threat. Um, and I don't think that's Snelling. And I think, again, hanging on to him as, as a depth player, I think there's potential there to, to look for something else and give players like Alwyn and, and Jaden's going to be potentially coming through next year and, and hopefully Tex Wanganin as well, give them more opportunities. Um, and then Lord doesn't seem to have come close to senior selection in his two years at the club, barring, you know, a COVID outbreak before the Hawthorne game. Um I don't think he's getting a contract. I think you can find that role again and potentially find someone that that's better there. Yeah, look, I, I think we've seen what Snelling can offer. He's been moved into some other roles and positions. Uh, I know people will recall his uh, 2021 season where he finished high up in the best and fairest, but I think our 
our club, our, our list has moved on from then the way that we play has moved on. And, and, you know, it's been a different role that he's played this year. We've seen him up on the wing and through the midfield. And I don't think anyone could, could ever question his endeavor, his in, endeavor or, or effort. But I think given that he's sort of been in and out a little bit of late is particularly when we've had some injuries is probably a bit of a sign of where the coaching group sees him in terms of next season. And then, I think the, the question our list management committee will need to decide on in terms of Lord is what upside he has. He, he was a really raw prospect when we drafted him. So, uh, you know, that they might feel that he still has some upside to unlock and he does play in a position that we don't have a lot of depth in. So uh, I, I, they'll probably need to weigh up what we can do, what we can do to address that, that lack of depth that we have there. If he's not going to be our man, then, then we need to have some, some other plans. Yeah, that, that's a fair point there. And I, I guess now with, you know, having already made the three list decisions that we, ha- we have to, we do have a little bit more flexibility than, than we may have if, say, Stuart was kept on and, and McDonald, Tip and Woody played on for another year. So there's a potential there. Uh, turning attention to the rookies, look, McBride got an extra year as a cat B because of uh, the first year he played was COVID. Um it's almost certain he won't be retained there. Um, and Mankara is always a project player. He was picked along the idea that he wouldn't even play VFL this year and he started in the VFL and he's just got seemed to have got better uh, year on year. So I see no reason why, unless there's some homesick issues, that he wouldn't be getting a new deal and the game something to be excited about for the future if he continues on the progression that he's, that he's on. Uh, the only rookie that I think has got a certain contract is Menzi, given he's been a mainstay of the senior side all year, and I know you're pretty happy about that. And, and given what was said on Gettable, um, Cal Toomey show um, by his manager, that, that contract seems all bar signed at this stage. Um, looking at the other uh, the other rookies now, look, this really is going to make me popular with the Essendon fandom, and this may be our, our last show ever before we get torn apart by the, the Essendon, uh, Essendon mob, but I do see a world where Baldwin isn't retained and, you know, I, th- I think we're oversubscribed with with key backs and, and you know, we've seen Wiedemann go back in the VFL there and, you know, if we do bring in Mackay and keep BZT, um, how many key backs do you need on a list? You know, if he stays there, you know, there may not be a spot. If BZT stays, there may not be a spot on the list for Baldwin. We're looking to fill other holes. Um, I'd, I'd like to see him stay. And, and, you know, with the news on BZT, if he does go, I think Baldwin does stay. But as I said, I think there's a world where Baldwin doesn't get a new contract. Um, the other rookies are touch and go for me. Look, Massimo's a great kick, but not a great defender. There's, there's still time there, but he's got a lot of flaws in his game that he needs to work on. Um, he can't just rely on being a really good kick. He needs some other strings to his bro. Um, Voss is competing with Langford and Stringer for a senior spot. Um, forms, forms dropped away a bit in the VFL. And, you know, if he couldn't get in this week without Peter Wright, I don't know what that says about his likeliness of, of being around in the future. Um, look, I haven't seen much of Montgomery. Um, it's been an, been an emergency a few times, but hasn't cracked that uh, senior spot. And you would have thought with um, Ridley going out, that might have been his opportunity and, and that hasn't happened. And then really with Hunter, it depends on how much they liked his performance against Carlton's VFL side. They only really saw him for for one game. The first game he played, you know, he's just got off the plane, so you can't really read much into that. And I guess it also depends on how he's gone about rehabbing it at the club. They'd get a good sense of his work ethic and, and his commitment from the way he's handled his his injury there to get a sense of whether he's worth another deal. Yeah, good summary, mate. I think you're, you're right on McBride. He's been at the club for a while now and hasn't played a game, so I think that probably 
says a lot about where he's at. Uh, Makara's just got better and better as the year's gone on. And, and every time I've seen him play, he, he's just more and more involved. And uh, yeah, he's an exciting talent and, and no doubt he's retained. And, and I think, uh, you know, we should be pretty enthusiastic and optimistic about what he might be able to do in the future. But I think it's going to take a fair bit of time. I, I mean, I'd, I'd give Jai Menzi a contract for life and it sounds like that's pretty much done. Not a contract for life, but certainly a, I think it's a two-year deal that that sounds like it's pretty close to to being locked away, which is good news. It, you know, he'll he'll finish the season as second leading goal kicker and, and given it's his first full season on the list, I think that's a, a pretty outstanding effort in, you know, in a, in a team that, that hasn't been blessed with uh, forward 50 delivery throughout the year. So, yeah, a huge kudos to him. I think the the remainder of the rookie list decisions are harder to assess. I'd imagine we'd be keen to extend Hunter, given what he showed in his brief taste at VFL level and what he was doing in the waffle before that. Like you said, assuming that he's adhered himself really well to his rehab and he's been professional in the way that he's gone about it, we don't have a lot of key forward depth. He can, uh, you know, he's got some real um, real talent. Clearly, I, I think he would he would be kept on. Massimo's. Talent, yeah, he's he's too talented not to be on an AFL list. I, I hope that it's ours rather than somebody else's. I, I think you know, with, with the right development focus, he can be a really good player. I'm not quite on the Voss and Baldwin train as some others. I think both have some great raw attributes. Again, I question I, the question our our list management committee will have to decide is how much more development they have them in terms of what position they can play at the AFL level. Can Voss play as a higher half forward because with Wright and Langford being 50 goal a year. Goal kickers plus Stringer in the mix as well. He's not going to dislodge any of them anytime soon. He hasn't been selected for the last game unless he comes in as a as a late change. So, you know, does that suggest uh, – is it a little bit of a suggestion as to, to where they see him and, and maybe there's not a, a fit for him going forward? And then does Baldwin have the ability and the sideways movement to be able to – and agility to be able to play on medium forwards and smaller forwards? Can he push the likes of Kelly and Heppel out of the side? Because I don't think he has the height or the one-on-one attributes to be able to play on the the modern-day 200-centimetre key forwards. So um, I, I know we spoke a lot about Jaden Laverde last week. I know Baldwin's a better user of the footy than, than Jaden is, but I think Jaden has the – a uh, better sideways movement and agility to be able to, to adapt his game to play on on smallest size forwards. Uh, I don't know whether Baldwin has that. I'm not saying that he doesn't. I just haven't seen it. Um, so yeah, look, I I, I, I sort of have a, a tendency to agree with you. If we keep BZT and we keep uh, and we get Ben Mackay, then I think he's surplus to our needs. And and again, it, it sounds harsh and cruel, but if we can turn a rookie lister into a, a draft pick or a, or a commodity that we can use to help improve the list, then I think that's an option that we just need to look at in the interest of getting our list better and and addressing some of the the needs that that our list has. Yeah, well, look, it's it's been it's been fun doing this show with you, but as, as I said, uh, given that we're we're sort of right almost writing Baldwin off, as I said, I think we might be this might be our last week, but we'll see. We'll we'll soldier on. Look, we're about to hit the hour mark. We haven't even talked about our, our final opponent for the season. And let's have a look at, at Collingwood there. We obviously lost the Anzac Day game and I'm not going to relitigate that because we all know what happened. But following the Anzac Day win, um, Pies were equal first and ladder with St Kilda. So they had five wins and one loss. Um, on the top of the ladder is where they've remained all season. And look, up to round 19, it really looked like the season was about how 
anyone could stop Collingwood's march to the flag. So they won 10 of their next 11 matches from Anzac Day to sit at 16 and 2. But the last four matches have really seen the Pies stumble somewhat. So they had a loss to Carlton, which was then followed by a surprise loss to the bottom four Hawks. They did hold on by eight points against Geelong, but they've lost their match coming into this one um, with a 24-point loss to the Lions, which we'll touch on in a minute. Um, and this form sum has really been compounded with some key injuries. So Brownlow medal favourite Nick Dacos has gone down for an extended period, likely to be back for a preliminary final at best. Um, and then Darcy Moore's going to miss the rest of the regular season. Um you know, now they've had multiple losses, it's really interesting to see what changes for them between their wins and their losses. So they're around parity with their centre and stoppage clearance numbers in wins. So they win the same amount of clearances as their opponents, but in their losses, they lose centre clearance by 1.6 and stoppage by 2.6. So their contested numbers are, are plus 5.6 in wins and minus 13 in losses. But interestingly, they have similar numbers of uncontested possessions in wins or losses. So they're not a side you can really play a keepings off game against it and expect to win, you have to beat them at the coalface. So this is especially true as the intercept game is the third best in the league and they have positive differentials in that in both wins and losses. So look, Collingwood are are the best tackling side in the league regardless of result. However, they do struggle when teams are able to put pressure on them exiting defensive 50. Um, Only Melbourne has a bigger difference in in opposition inside 50 tackles than, than Collingwood does between wins and losses. So when Collingwood win, they're only tackled by their opposition 8.2 times in Collingwood's defensive 50. Um, whilst in losses, that number jumps to 12. So it's, it's a really big difference. So when you can put pressure on them exiting defensive 50, that's when you can beat them. Yeah, good good summary, mate. I, I think, you know, unlike previous weeks, I, I haven't given everything that's that's transpired with with our club last weekend and and you know, this into this week, I, I haven't done the level of analysis on the opposition that I I normally would. I think just touching back to that that Anzac Day game, uh, you know, it's, it feels like forever ago now, but we had some really good patches in that game, didn't we? I, I do think that Collingwood under normal circumstances, uh, and and we don't go into this week under normal circumstances, but uh, they're a team that we match up reasonably well against. Uh, they they only scored six goals to three quarter time, and just one goal in each of the first and, and third quarters. So we had some really really good moments in that game. In that first quarter, we kicked two goals from forward half turnovers, three goals in um, in the uh, three goals in the third quarter from from forward half turnovers, and another goal in that quarter from a forward fifty stoppage. We kicked. Six goals, three for total in that third quarter. And, and you know, it was really one of our best quarters of the season. In the last, they sent extra numbers, you know, through the middle of the ground into the contest. That they took over the incontested ball and at stoppage. We made some dumb errors early, didn't we? That that BZT drop mark that he really should have taken gave the, the Pies a look at an early goal. And, and we missed a couple of chances to stop their momentum. And, and it really became the Nick Dacos show after that. Uh, I think our best that day was as good as their best. For the day, uh, they just did it for a little bit longer than than we did. But yeah, as I said, my my analysis into the pies this week has has been um, pretty um, pretty slim, mate. So let's have a look at selection and um, and what's happened there. Yeah, so Brad Scott did uh, mention in his press conference today that there was going to be bulk changes this week, and a lot of injured players have gone out. So Jake Kelly, Jake Stringer, Jai Caldwell, Matt Guelfi. Peter Wright and Sam Draper have all gone out and they've all been listed as, as injured. And, and in comes Kane Baldwin, Nick Bryan, Sam Wiedemann, Will Setterfield, Will Snelling. There's obviously been four emergencies names, but we're all 
uh, with the announcement today, it's, it's pretty clear that Tipper's going to be that uh, emergency. And I imagine the Raw, when he comes on, will be huge regardless of the the match situation. And Well, I get that people are frustrated that we played underdone players in, in Draper, Stringer and Caldwell last week. I think they decided that they were going to have one last big crack at trying to make finals and, and took punts that our best players would be able to, to perform. And look, that obviously didn't work out. The fact that we lost by so much wasn't because we played underdone players. It's because all the players didn't perform to expectations. Um, so I'm not that upset for the selection committee trying that. I think they, they rolled the dice and the dice came up unfavorably. Um, most of the ends are fairly obvious. And I know fans will be happy to see Baldwin back in the side, potentially for his last game based on our, our previous discussion. I'll, I'll, I'll promise I'll stop making jokes about this. Um, it's a big job for Wiedemann. To, I, I expect he'll play forward um, after spending the last few weeks in the VFL as a back, but hopefully he sees this as sort of a free hit and doesn't feel the same sort of pressure he was clearly under towards the end of his previous stint in the side. Yeah, we we should start joking about it. I think he's he's a he's a really really talented player, and and he's shown some really promising sides for for such a young guy. So I'm looking forward to seeing him play tomorrow night, and and um. You know he, he's going to have a, a tough matchup uh, regardless of who he ends up on. So yeah, good opportunity to, to see him again. I'm, I'm really excited that Will Setterfield's back. Uh, I think he he really does help bring some balance to our midfield that we just don't have without him. Uh, and yeah, you know, happy to see Weedham get another go and 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 Nick Bryan get another go as well. Uh, obviously. Waller's last game and and Flip's last game, so they're going to be emotional moments. Um, we sort of said that selection's been a little bit weird for for a little while now. I do. I've been reflecting a little bit on it this week, and and I do think we got unstuck after that Crows game. You know, all, all year we've been, uh, and our coaches have been talking about the future and trying to set us up for for the future. Don't sacrifice the the future for the now. Was was the consistent message, and and even um, in the in the period post that Crows game where we got to fifth or the later, the message was the same. But but perhaps the actions weren't. I, I, I do think we got ourselves a little bit stuck. We got to fifth on the ladder. We were playing some really good footy, an opportunity to to finish. You know, uh, and uh, up the ladder, get a home final, and and potentially win one was, was probably a little bit too good an opportunity to pass up. We we made some some shorter term decisions, I I do think, uh, and uh, regardless of what was said, and and then I think it took us a little while to to unpick that. Some injuries hit at some really unfortunate times. Losing Draper and and Ridley when we did was were really really big blows. On top of you know the likes of Setterfield and Shield already out, and and then Stringer went down as well. So I think we we just really found it hard to to unpick some of the the changes that we'd made and and it, it sort of unraveled itself a little bit. But I also think there was an element at looking at some players in, in different roles. We've spoken about that before, you know, Kelly out of the back line into other positions, snelling into some other roles, et cetera, to help make some list management decisions going forward. So, you know, I, I get that. I, I think it's been a little bit of a hodgepodge, but um, you know, round 24 now last game and, and um, yeah, let's hope some of these young kids step up and, and, um, and we can finish the year with momentum. Um, before we we sort of move on, what have the pies done, mate? At selection, yeah. So they've they've had a couple of injuries, and and Bo McCreary's been suspended as well. Um, their ins are Bobby Hill and, and Jordan Dugowie, and their uh, sub is going to be uh, chosen from Ed Allen, Finley McRae, Josh Carmichael, and and Reef McInnes. Look, obviously some quality coming back in there for the pies, and you know we're not going to touch too much on their selection, but you would imagine they wouldn't be looking to take this game too easily given you know they're coming off some pretty average form themselves. They're really going to want to hit the finals in as good a position as possible, and so they're going to be looking probably to go fairly hard, even you know even though if they're trying to um, 
you know, protect players from being injured. They also don't want to go in having, you know, you know, five weeks of poor performances into finals. Yeah, that's right. They're, they've been down for a little bit now, so they'll they'll really be wanting to to unlock, you know, the, some of their best footy. So yeah, even despite some of their outs, I think they've got a lot to play for. So uh, yeah, I don't think they'll be taking this one easily by any stretch. Yeah, speaking speaking of poor form, let's look at Collingwood's last game. So they were 15-10-100 and they they lost to Brisbane 19-10-124. It's, it's their third loss in four games. Um, so their road to the premiership has hit a few bumps on the way. Um. Brisbane took the lead late in the first quarter and held it for the rest of the match. You know, Collingwood had one of their traditional come-from-behind efforts. They kicked four goals in a row in the third quarter, but Brisbane steadied and, and you know, got out to that comfortable lead at, by the end of the game. And, look, statistically, the match was quite even. The, the big outliers were the Lions taking 23 more marks, and we, we talked about that earlier, that the Lions are a really high-marking side, and the Lions were able to generate eight more inside 50s. And the match was a really difficult one for defenders, with both teams going at roughly 57% efficiency inside. It's actually something that's really dropped away from Collingwood. They're, they're allowing a lot more scores when teams enter 50 recently, uh, just in terms of individual performances. So Jamie Elliott kicked three goals and, and Majacek, McStay and Howe kicked two each. And, and then Penderbury really turned back the clock, probably his, his best game statistically for the year. He had 31 disposals and 12 clearances. And, and Tom Mitchell also had 31 disposals. Yeah, Collingwood kicked five goals to two from centre bounces and six goals to three from stoppages. So you know, I, I know some of the, the stats were, were quite even, but everything else about this game just screamed 40-plus point win to Brisbane, given that Brisbane were able to sc- outscore Collingwood by 13 goals to four from turnovers. It was really just that, you know, 11 goals to five from, you know, set of bounces, stoppages combined that that kept Collingwood in the game to an extent. So, yeah, I, I think the, the scoreboard ultimately flooded the pies and, and I think they'd have some real concerns with how they went about that game. Yeah. Well, let's let's turn to Friday night and we normally focus on what the opposition does well and how we can negate them. But after last week's performance, I think it's probably better to keep attention on what the Dons need to do in order to compete with what is still the top team in the competition for our, you know, there's been all these mathematical formulas flying around how we can make the finals. But I think, you know, in 99.99% of scenarios, this is our last game for the year. Yeah. Um, unless Carlton have, cheated the salary cap again and have their points taken off them and we finish ninth and get to, uh, you know, so what, Bulldogs lose to Geelong, we we win, finish ninth and, and take Carlton's spot. That would be that would be nice. But, yeah, look, mate, we, we've got a lot out, don't we? You know, Ridley, probably our most important player uh, alongside, you know, Zach Merritt, of course, but, you know, Draper and Stringer are, are right up there in terms of importance. Peter Wright's out, Shields out, Caldwell's out. You know, they're all in our best team. Jones, Guelphie, Kelly, are, you know, sort of there or thereabouts. So, you know, if they're not in our best 22, then they're certainly, you know, um, in the next line of players to come in um, when we've got some outs. Collingwood have some key pieces missing too. Nick Dacos is obviously a star. Darcy Moore and, and Murphy are their key pillars down back and, and Moore, of course, is their captain. And McCreary's a really important player for them too. You know, he's a he's a key piece of their pressure and, and link-up play. So he'll be missed, but... You know, I think ultimately, mate, this game's just about accountability. It's about effort and it's about pride. And despite missing Ridley, I think our, our back line's in reasonable shape. You know, McStay and, and, and Majacek, good players, really hard workers, really strong competitors, but they don't 
present that physical presence of the types of forwards that have really um, hurt us this season. I think Setterfield, I touched on, he gives us that key piece of our, our midfield structure that we don't have at the moment. He gives support to Parrish and Merritt by allowing them to focus on what they're best at and, 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 um, and he helps to pick up the slack on the things that they're not so good at. Uh, and, and, you know, that that's important in a midfield in terms of balance, not, not every midfielder can do everything. So I think he complements those guys really well. Um, we're missing some pieces in the forward line. I think that's where it's going to be a challenge for us. But if we can get even numbers at the contest around the ground, get some real balance at the contest, I think that was the one thing that was – well, it wasn't the one thing. There were lots of things that were poor in the, the GWS game. But one of those were that we either had too many in at the contest or not enough. Um, so so we lacked real balance in terms of getting the, the right spread at the contest. If we can get that right – we can limit their centre bounce and stoppage scores, then I think it comes down to our ability to work hard enough when the ball is in dispute and work hard enough when Collingwood has it to put enough pressure on them to try and make a game of it. So, you know, that that's ultimately what I'd like to see is just for us to make a real game of this, make a contest of it and, and you know, um, don't wave the white flag like we, we did last week. And I think the other thing that I'd like to see, mate, is if it's not too much to ask, is just one last big rundown tackle from Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody and, and kick one last goal. And, and I think if we get those things that then, um, you know, we can exit season 2023 with, um, yeah, with some real pride and, and optimism about our footy club. Absolutely. Well, look, we've, we've come down to our final, final thought of the year and I haven't actually put together anything specific. So I thought I'd just let you get anything off your chest that you wanted to. So whatever you want to say, let's hear it. Yeah. Look at, uh- Mate, we we all love this footy club, and let's face it if you if you listen to us rabbit on every week, and you know you're you're still listening now, even though we've been talking for an hour, then you know you you're not just a, a facility a passive fan. You're a, a you're an Essendon diehard, and the Essendon Football Club means so much to all of us, and and you have every right to be disappointed and to be angry about what happened last Saturday, and and I don't begrudge anybody for feeling that way, and and you know believe me, I'm 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 there with you, but don't give up on us. We've been through hell and back and, and, you know, maybe we're not all the way back just yet, but we've endured more than any supporter group than I think any other supporter group in this country. We, we really have been put through a lot and, and most of that has sadly been at the hands of our, our own club, but we can't change that and, and neither can the new leaders at our club. I think 2023 is year zero. There's been some really good stuff. There's been some bad stuff and there's been some ugly stuff and, and we get that, but we have stability and unity at the top that we haven't had for a long time. And and through that and, and that alone gives us the opportunity to get this club back where it belongs. So yeah, don't, don't give up on us. Don't let the words of others take your passion away. There's going to be some really angry people and, and continue to be, and, and they're going to throw out around a lot of statements about not renewing memberships and giving up on the club and, all of that. Don't buy into the rhetoric and the sensationalism, you know, the knocks on our culture, the knocks on our game plan, on our system or, or whatever it is. Uh, the, you know, the, there's definitely people out there whose motivation is just to drive engagement and to drive clicks and, and to drive views and, and all of those kind of things. Just uh, leave that stuff alone. Don't 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 entertain it. Don't buy into it. Uh, our motivation uh, in terms of speaking for myself and Humi, uh, you know, we just want people to love the Essendon Footy Club as much as we do. And, and that's why we do. Uh, what we do every week and, and why we, we keep talking about this great club because we love it so much. And and Saturday sucked and, you know, we're not here trying to tell you that it's all going to be rainbows and, and unicorns, but it's also not all bad either. And and let's try not to lose sight of that. We finally got a group of, of real leaders at the club that are prepared to tell us that 
it's going to take a lot of hard work and that they're prepared to do it. And I think that's a really good position to start from. So, yeah, don't give up on us. See it through. And, um, yeah, let's hope the good times are, are around the corner and, and we can look back on on last Saturday as a bit of a turning point of, of where Essendon found its heart and its desire again. Yeah. I, I often I often come back after after you said things by saying well said, but I don't think um, I mean it more than I, than I have now by saying well said there. I think that was outstanding, and um, what you said there, I think fans should really take take to their hearts and you know again give give the club that time, give give this leadership group that time to to try and build something that is going to be successful. Because again, if we if we if we flip flop and, and and we try and see about some quick fixes we're, we're just going to be in the same position in a couple of years and having to start again so we, we just need to give some time and, and energy to to build something that is going to be what the Essendon Football Club should be well look it's been a monster show where I think we're up to a, a minute I'm oh, sorry I think we're up to an hour and a quarter now so look you've put in a lot of work this week Jono thanks so much for for all your efforts it's been really cathartic um, to get some thoughts out at what was been a tough week for a Bombers fan and look we're both getting along on Friday night to to see Tipper's last game and, and the last game for the season. And look, if you, you're in the area early, we'll be at Founders Bar at the MCG pre-match. So if you'd like to come and say hello, we'd love to meet you. Um, yeah, any final words from you, Jono? Yeah, it, I mean, if any Kane Baldwin fans plan on coming along, Hume's the tall one, leave me alone. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I am looking forward to catching up with people tomorrow night, mate. It's, it's going to be good fun. And, and I just want to give a shout out to the Donnerstack community. A really, you know, really fabulous bunch of people. We're really fortunate to be able to to do what we do, and and we have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, we've said it before that the the engagement that we have with other SN fans has been the 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 part that we we didn't expect, but also the most rewarding and the best part of it. And, and thanks to everyone who sent DMs and and messages and and some of the messages in our Patreon group and and those kind of things um, from people checking in. I, I think there's a real understanding that you know that that we all hurt a fair bit after what happened on Saturday but um but yeah there, there's a, a real special sort of bond uh developing amongst the the community and and people that support us so uh yeah really really grateful for that we 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 have fabulous support and and I just want to say thank you to everybody yeah well I'll say it again but well said there mate look stay safe everyone and go dons